How an Outsider Helps Change a Culture from the Inside. Welcome to a special segment focused on global health. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Molly Melching, founder and executive director of Toastan. She's also won the Sergeant Shriver Distinguished Service for Humanitarian Service and the Conrad Hilton Humanitarian Prize. Thank you very much, Molly, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, what is Toastand, and in what language is it in? Uh, Toastand is a Wolof word that means breakthrough. It literally means the hatching of an egg, but we, in fact, use it to mean spreading of knowledge. Uh, when people learn in their own language and their national languages, and Toastand works in 19 African languages, they learn new information, and then they share it with their relatives, their friends, They spread the word and people start getting the information they need to make very important decisions. So Tostan is very meaningful. It's a very meaningful word to us. I know Tostan has its headquarters in Senegal, and that's where you've lived for a long time. I know that initially you came there with an educational motive or an educational vision. How did you go from being an educator into human rights, and how did human rights education on a village level teach or improve health for the larger community? Well, actually, I went to Senegal to study at the university. I was going to finish my master's at the University of Illinois, and I went for six months. And so it was really just a personal thing when I went to finish my master's. But when I got here, I got so excited about the culture and the society, and I was learning so much myself about Senegal and African culture and traditions that I became interested in staying. And I originally worked at a children's center and was teaching street children in their own language and with stories, traditional songs and poetry and theater, and then moved to a village. And in the village, I then started working on an educational program for the community that would really respond to their needs and priorities as expressed by they themselves. And as we worked on this program in 1988, UNICEF started funding us, and we moved on to many different communities, and we were confronted with new demands and requests by the populations for themes. And one of the themes that women wanted particularly to learn about was their own health. And as we started working on that, on those modules, to teach women's health, we realized that it was critical to start with human rights, because if women do not know their rights, how can they actually stand up for their health? How can they even use the health hut or health center? Or how can they defend their right to do family planning? How can they tell their husband, look, you've been off in the city and now we're a little bit worried about HIV AIDS and we want you to get a test. I mean, women would never have dared to speak out on these issues before. Learning human rights gave them incredible confidence and made them much more proactive than they had been in the uh, program that we had been doing for eight years. When we started introducing human rights, there was a huge change in what women were able to accomplish once they knew about human rights. And one of the most amazing things that happened was that women decided on their own to abandon the practice of female genital cutting. Could you give me an idea, statistically, how frequent female genital cutting is in Africa and how many countries are involved? Female genital cutting is a tradition that has lasted for 2,200 years. Originally began, we believe, in Egypt with the pharaohs and in the pharaoh's court. As he started marrying women who were infibulated, the pharaonic infibulation, women started practicing this so that they could even marry into the pharaoh's court or be a concubine. 
And as women saw that they could move up in status, the actual the practice started moving down. And as there was migration out of Egypt and across Africa, it spread. And particularly in countries such as Mali, where there was a hierarchy of with the empires, the Mandenka Empire, which spread this practice even further, and into Senegal. For example, in Senegal, FGC is practiced by 28% of the population. But that figure is very deceptive because when you look at the different ethnic groups within the Fulani ethnic group or the Mandenka ethnic group, actually it is much, much higher. It is just the Wolof ethnic group that does not practice FGC. So when you work in Mandenka village, a Mandenka village, you'll find that all of the Mandenkas there practice. In fact, it's like a social convention. If you don't practice it, you won't get a husband. And this is what Tostan learned as we started doing our human rights work that women were not even able to discuss this because it was a social norm, a social convention that was just expected of them. And they couldn't imagine that if their daughter was not cut, they knew no man would want to marry their daughter. So, of course, they had to do it. They were trapped in this convention, even if they themselves had problems. Now, I knew a woman, whom an amazing woman. She, she told me that her daughter died during this tradition, and she said the, the most incredible thing was that when her old, your younger daughter then was ready to be circumcised at that time, she said, you would think that I would say no. She said, because it was the most horrible experience to have all the girls go off for the circumcision ceremony. And she was the only mother that was not called. And then they finally called her in in the morning and said, your daughter has died and she's already buried. She said, you would think, and she started crying when she told me this, she would think that with my second daughter, I would say, no, I don't ever want to take the risk. She said, but I had no choice, Molly. And then she looked at me and she said, this is what human rights education has done for me. It has given me choice. And I wonder what the response of the women who are called cutters who do this. They really view themselves as honorable, kind people. They don't view themselves as... No, they're helping the mothers to make their children successful. And so we soon learned, and this is one of the most important aspects of the Tostan program, is that one, this one woman I told you about, Marietu, she could not abandon FGC alone. The reason she was able to abandon is because Tostan, in our program, taught this core group of people, women, men, and adolescents, about the dangers. We didn't tell people to stop. We merely informed them of the dangers. We allowed a forum, a space where they could openly talk about these issues and discuss some of these experiences that they had never talked about before. Marietu had never told anyone what happened to her daughter. So by coming out and talking about these things for the first time, it allowed people to come together, and Tosan helped to facilitate them coming together from many villages that might have been far off and difficult to get together, you know, to come and transportation and having to eat and spend the night. So we had facilitated their coming together and discussing these issues on their own as an extended family for whom this tradition had been so critical for so many years. This forum allowed them to make these important decisions as a united family and deciding together as of tomorrow no one will practice this again. And in that way, no girl would be ostracized. No girl would be marginalized and not marriageable. So this was the critical thing that we discovered, and we discovered it through the villagers themselves. We later found out from a scholar at the University of California in San Diego 
that this is how foot binding ended in China, that women had wanted to end this practice, but they couldn't because it was a required for marriage. A, a woman who did not have bound feet would not have a husband. So what happened in 1895 to 1907, there were marriage clubs established where people would sign in and say, our daughter will not have bound feet and our sons will never marry a girl that has bound feet. And this allowed people to stop safely. And this is what happened in Senegal. And we went from one village abandoning uh, in 1997 in Mali Kundabambara to today where we've had over 3,300 communities abandon female genital cutting, coming together, publicly declaring that together we, our family, our ethnic group, we have decided to stop this practice because we are moving towards health, we are moving towards human rights, we want our community to be in good health, to be happy and prosperous, and we can't do this if we continue on with these practices. The United States hears all the time, just say no, and I can't help but make that association. Just saying no isn't enough, that change has to come from within. Is that what actually happened with Tostan? It is. I think that when there is a, there's a question of a social norm, that people have the habit and the custom of doing things and they have never questioned them before, coming up with a message saying to people, stop this now, actually can have the opposite effect. It can make people more defensive and reactive and say, wait a minute, who are you to be telling me what to do? This is something I've been doing for years. My mother did it. My family did it. My grandmother did it. How dare you? So this was the reaction I, I think that many people have gotten when they've tried to get others to stop things especially something like female genital cutting, whereas going in and informing people and trusting people and saying you're going to make the right decision when you have the right information, trusting that people, you know, it might take them a while, but that if they can do it under the proper conditions, that is getting together the group that is concerned by this practice and discussing it with them, allowing them to come together and say let's come up with a different social norm that will be more beneficial to us as a group in the future. And then actually witnessing people doing that is much more productive in the long run to behavior change than trying to you know, put up posters, stop this, don't do that. It really, and we've seen this also in Africa, has really led to people being even more resistant, marching against people who are trying to do this. It's, it's understandable. We would feel the same way. So I feel very strongly that it, information and, and education is critical in all this. We believe that human rights education really helped give people an, an, an idea of where they wanted to go and what, what the framework was. Human rights provided that framework for them. We want a society in which there is peace and security, where there is health and education and, and lack of violence and lack of discrimination. You know, when you FGC, you couldn't marry someone who didn't undergo FGC. So they said, look, this is a, a practice that has led to discrimination. We, we want to end this because we believe that's not good. Even our religion speaks out against the discriminatory practices. So it, it really helped tremendously to understand social norms and how they work to use those rather than going in and just putting up signs, stop this now, this is bad, and this prescriptive messaging. I've read where 
when two women get together, there is hope, and when there are 35, you can change the world. I want to thank Molly Melching, founder and executive director of Tostan, an organization that, through education, has made both men and women in Senegal and the greater African continent aware of human rights education, and through that, leading to changes in long-established cultures, such as female genital cutting, and how eliminating this has opened the culture up to better health. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and you've been listening to a special segment on global health. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.